Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Strategy in many ways is going, I'm here. I'm trying to get there. This is the landscape in front of me. What are the options of the paths that I can walk to get to that outcome that I want? And, you know, all of that is seeing the map, seeing the journey, seeing the path, seeing the options. It's got that strong visual sense to it, which is why I think there's a, a dispro disproportionate number of CEOs and senior leaders who are actually dyslexic because what they've got is they've got that different sort of intelligence that is more visual that allows them to play more of that strategic role. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Michael, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It is great to be back. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it is. You know, it's funny because uh, you and I talked way back in the day when we were called Blogcast FM, I think probably in the first 150 plus interviews or so. Right. Yeah, uh, so I, I was part of the uh, phase one. In your, <laughs> and it's obviously you guys have evolved and grown and focused since then. So it's nice to come back on kind of version two and kind of play with you here. Yeah, it's it's really cool to have you back here. And, you know, given that it has been so long, uh, there's probably a lot of new people in our, our audience. And so uh, for their sake, can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, your your background, your work, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Sure. So I am Australian by birth and have uh, found myself now living in Canada. So there's the geographical span. I left Australia 25 years ago, lived in England for a while, Boston for a while, Toronto now. Um, And I had the good luck and good fortune to be a Rhodes Scholar. So that's what pulled me away from Australia. It was particularly fortunate for two things. First of all, it stopped me becoming a lawyer because I'd done a law degree in Australia. And the fact that I finished my law school, my law degree being sued by one of my law lecturers for defamation probably gives you a clue as to how well that career would have worked out for me. So saved me from becoming a lawyer. Secondly, I got to meet my Canadian wife at Oxford where we were studying together. So that also you know, changed my life forever for the good. Um, when I finally staggered out of uh, university, I have a couple of literature degrees to my name, um, I got started in the world of work by starting in the world of innovation and creativity. So I invented products and services for people, moved from there into the world of organizational change, how do companies grow and evolve and become better places for the people that work there. And by now I was living in Boston and then in 2001 left Boston and came to Toronto and shortly after that set up my own company called Box of Crayons. And, uh, you know, it's grown and evolved over time as well. But, you know, in a sentence or two, our bigger purpose as a company is to help people and organizations do less good work and more great work. 
And the thing that we've really become known for and become to specialize in is helping busy managers and leaders and human beings coach in 10 minutes or less, giving them the practical tools so that coaching can become part of their everyday way of working. And along the way, you know, I've written a, a number of different books. Uh, Do More Great Work is the book that sold the most. Uh, End Malaria is a partnership I did with Seth Godin, which raised $400,000 for Malaria No More, which is probably the one I'm proudest of. And part of what initiated us reconnecting here, Srini, is I have a new book coming out called The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Mm. There we go. How's that for a quick kind of rundown? Oh, that's perfect. Uh, but, you know, you having heard our interviews know that I, I'm going to want to dig back into all of it. Oh, of uh, course. Yeah. You know, I, I want to start uh, way further back than we normally have in the past. I mean, you're a Rhodes Scholar. So the question I think that that raises for me, uh, which, you know, is a question that I ask a lot of people is, is what your childhood was like and what were the sort of early influences and uh, mentors, people that kind of shaped that path uh, to you becoming a Rhodes Scholar? You know, I actually had a pretty fantastic childhood. Um, I have uh, awesome parents, both alive, both still married, uh, two great brothers younger than me who allowed me to push them around a little bit, but not too much. Um, And, uh, you know, I went to schools where I was um, welcomed and accepted and, and kind of flourished. So I just had a you know, I talked to my wife about my childhood and she like gnashes her teeth a little bit and go, you're the damn Waltons. You guys are driving me crazy. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's not quite as idyllic as that, but it was a, it was a pretty wonderful childhood. And it's a great question, Srini, because actually, you know, my dad is definitely one of my role models, one of my heroes. You know, he's a, just a gentle man with great integrity and a great sense of generosity. And he happens to be English. And in fact, he happens to be the son of a headmaster who was the headmaster of a a school in England called Magdalen College School. And Magdalen College School happens to be in Oxford. And uh, my dad, being a local boy, in, in part at least, got to go to Oxford as well. So come age of 13 or 14, I get asked by one of my teachers in my high school, so Michael, what do you want to do when you kind of grow up? And honestly, I had no idea. Still don't really have much of an idea, but <laughs> definitely at 13 and 14, definitely had no idea. But what I told him was, well, I think I'd like to go to Oxford University because, you know, that's where my dad went and I don't even get what university is about, but hey, why don't I go to Oxford University? And this teacher, a guy called Peter Lennox, said, well, well, if you're going to go to Oxford, obviously you'll have to win yourself a Rhodes Scholarship. I went, okay, note it win a Rhodes Scholarship. And that seed got planted and kind of just, I wouldn't say it overtly shaped most of what I chose to do and how I chose to do it, but it certainly seemed to play a role in that. Um, I remember reading uh, Chris Hadfield's book. Now, Chris Hadfield, for those who don't know, he's the guy who was the commander of the space center, uh, space um whatever that thing is up in the sky mm-hmm. and, and made the big hit by singing the Bowie song, you know, uh, whatever that Bowie song is. And certainly in Canada, he's become a bit of a hero, right? Cause he's a rock and roll astronaut. He's awesome. And if you read his book, he, he sort of decided at the age of nine to be an astronaut. And as he said, you know, every decision I made after that was, will this get me closer to becoming an astronaut or further away from being an astronaut? And I would guess that 
having had that seed planted in my brain when I was 13 or 14, uh, to an extent, I was making some sort of decision, maybe at a subconscious level about, is this thing going to take me closer to the chance of being a Rhodes Scholar or, or not? Mm. What if the seed was never planted for any of us? <laughs> That's, um, well, I would posit that the seeds are always planted. Uh-huh. Uh, but what needs to happen is they need to be nurtured. And I think a, a more common occurrence is the seed is planted, but it's not given the time and space and self-reflection and care to allow it to grow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that seed was planted. I was lucky enough to notice it and go, aha. Um, but, you know, as part of that, I also kind of, I would say, did some of the work around got clear on who I was, got clear on what my strengths were, got clear on what I needed to do to bring that to fruition and did the hard work that got it along there. And so I, my, my guess is that for most of us and probably almost all of your audience listening into this show in particular, seeds have been planted. Uh, it's a question of have you had a chance to reflect on them? Have you had a chance to make a choice, be brave enough to say yes to some and no to others? Have you had a chance to do the work so that you move from, you know, competent incompet- uh, co- conscious incompetence, where when you start you go, wow, I'm really, I really notice how bad I am at this, to get better at it so you become consciously competent and then move to mastery. All of those things that allow us to get to the top of something and to evolve and to, to find those opportunities. Uh, you know, the great saying was it um, Thomas Edison, he said, you know, luck is 99% perspiration. Um, I think that's, if this is not a weird metaphor, <laughs> those seeds that get planted get watered by 99% perspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's really interesting that, you had an awareness at such a young age of, of these kinds of things. And uh, I wonder, I can't help but ask you, you know, why is it that we don't typically get exposed to these kinds of ideas and have this level of awareness at that age? At least in my experience, I don't find that to be very common. Yeah, you know, and it would be, I, I would be, I wouldn't be making myself like some, sound like some sort of child genius to go, oh yeah, at four, 13 I started plotting out my life's destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely, it had struck a chord around this being something that mattered to me. And, you know, I, I don't know, Srini, I don't have children of my own, so I don't really have that experience of, seeing another generation and being close to children going, how do you make them realize potential, see opportunities? Um, I think uh, persistence is just part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there is a degree of just good luck that you get to hear the thing that you need to hear at the time you hear it. And even if you don't get it when you're 13 or 14 or whatever age, um, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, the real question is now, if you're listening, you know, what are the opportunities that you might be overlooking? You know, what are the things that are being said to you that you're not hearing? Um, are you giving yourself the space to actually reflect and perhaps capture some of those insights? And, you know, and there's all sorts of ways to do that. You know, anything from 
you know, morning journaling, the classic, the artist's way, uh, meditation, such a powerful tool. Um, I have a I have a, a mastermind group, a brain trust that I've had for eight or nine years, and they've been, you know, really critical at being a force to reflect opportunities to me, reflect what I'm good at, reflect what I'm bad at, reflect what my terrible or my predictable patterns are in terms of how I respond to things and support me in that growth. Hmm. You know, it's just, it's interesting as, as I uh, hear you talk about all this, it's, it's very timely because this morning I was reflecting back on the roots of uh, my writing and I realized that I'd always been a writer. I just never actually wrote, you know, the way I do now, because even, you know, when I graduated from college, I think the week after I graduated, I was looking for a job, but every night I would sit down and I would write and I wrote a 64 page typed single spaced story about the four years I had had in college, like a mini autobiography. And I wrote it in six days. Wow. And, you know, it's one of those things I look back at, but I couldn't figure out how to connect that to a career path in any way at all. In fact, I just overlooked it as, okay, this is just something I'm doing. I didn't think that, hey, maybe this is what I should try to go out and do for a living. You know, there's a, there's a quote I love, and it will perhaps resonate with you here, which is, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. And I, partly I love that because you do have that aha moment where you make the connection that you just made, which is like, oh, my God, that's why when I was 19, I wrote a 64-page single-space type story about my, my life in college so far. Uh, but also in, in better than that is um, – to, to make those connections, to find that inspiration, you, you need a degree of reflection and, and of looking back so that you can make the connection. So it doesn't just, it typically just does, it doesn't happen by miracle. It requires a degree of self-work to get, get, get there as well. Mm. As somebody who uh, thrived uh, within our education system and now, uh, you know, is, is so focused on, on, you know, this idea of creativity, yeah, I'd be really curious to to hear what your perspective is on uh, the education system in the modern world, and you know what is right about it, what's wrong with it, is it for everybody? Uh, I just, you know, like I said, uh, I often feel very much like a failed byproduct of the system, uh, and I did many of the right things, and so I, you know, as somebody who's a Rhodes Scholar, your perspective to me would be really fascinating. So I, 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 I will answer that question with the caveat that I have no children. So I have no direct investment in the education system. Okay. You know, I have nieces and nephews who I care about and I see them there in Australia. So again, even through them, I get a very sort of reflected shadow of the education system. Um, so I'm not sure, Srini, if I've got anything of value to add other than to go First of all, I never really made the connection, the connection that you made in answering, asking the question, which is lovely, around, you know, you're, you're a champion for creativity, you like to do that, which I do. And, you know, so often the education system is the antithesis of being creative. It's more about, you know, passing the tests and, and following the rules. Um, so that is interesting, and I can't really explain that paradox. Um, but I will say this, one of the things that I learned from the education system is almost a meta lesson, which is around, you know, at high school and at university, I was, I, it became clear that there's a game to be played here. You know, Sherlock Holmes would say the game's afoot. And that's a little bit what the education system is about, which is around, 
work out what the system is and what the game is and work out how to play it well so that you can thrive. And there is a degree to which um, part of whatever success I had came from not being super smart, which I'm not, but working the system so that I could get the maximum return on whatever it is that I have. So and what is an example of what I mean by that. So in high school, I studied Latin. A terrible, terrible decision on my part. Entirely unclear why I did six years of Latin because I have no, no natural ability as a log- logician or a linguist. <laughs> no, Latin is like a terrible choice. But for some reason, I endured doing Latin. And come my final exam, half of it was on scene translation, half of it unseen translation. And I just suddenly went, you know what? There's no point in me trying to get any points at all through the unseen translation piece because I, I, no, I have no ability in that area at all. And it is a waste of time and effort to invest in trying to improve my performance a little bit there. So I put all of my time and effort into mastering the scene translation part of the test and so I could get as many, as maximize the, the points I could get there, which you could do through diligent memory work and repetition. So I guess there's something here around the 80-20 rule, which is around going, look, <clears throat> even as you're part of the system, you're, you, you have a degree of agency in the system, or at least you did when I was going through the education system. Mm-hmm. What choices can you make in terms of the 80-20 rule, in terms of understanding that it's a game to be played and understanding how best to use your strengths and your skills to best play the game to get the result that you wanted? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, as you're, as you're talking about that, I am reflecting on a conversation that I had with Cal Newport. Uh, about his right. new book, Deep Work, uh, which happens to be the episodes on the podcast today. So it's fresh on my mind. And, mm. you know, he had talked about this systematic way of thinking and solving problems. And I, I realized there was a question that I wish I had asked him. Uh, and that's this capacity to use systematic thinking to solve problems, to be more creative. Is that something that can be developed and trained after we've reached a certain point in our adult lives. Because I think one of the things that he mentioned to me was that, you know, it makes a very strong impression on a very young developing mind. And I can't help but wonder, you know, what is the impact of that on a developed mind? And and can we train this idea of systematic thinking, which I I realize is a very big sort of question that we could spend an hour talking about. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I'll tell you the connection I make, Shreen, and again, um, your, your questions are really good, so I'm spending more time trying to avoid them rather than actually answer <laughs> them directly. I've been known so, to do that to people. So, so I don't look you know, more ignorant than I actually am, but I think system, system thinking or connected to that strategic thinking is a visual act rather than just a purely rational act. So I think one of the undeveloped skills is to be thinking about how do you help give people a visual vocabulary and a way of understanding visual connections. Um, And that's why I think, you know, um, Dan Rome, I don't know if you ever read his book on the back of a napkin and he's got a, a few other books are based around that. But what those books are about is, you know, effectively a picture is worth a thousand words. 
let me show you how you can draw even when you can't draw so that you build an ability to express ideas and make connections at a visual level, not just at a verbal level or an intellectual level. And, you know, there are always people who have that kind of wiring that makes them better at that certain type of thinking than others. You know, some people you look at and you go, you are just gifted at seeing five to seven years in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at some other people and go, you are just gifted at seeing the minutiae here and now for today. Uh, and diff- people have kind of different focal lengths, I think, of their ability about where they where they best bring their skill and competence. But I think for everybody, the more that you can create uh, a, a visual vocabulary and a visual capacity, and I think that is something that you can learn and build on and practice at any age, all of that I think would contribute to the ability to be more strategic and to allow that systemic thinking. I mean, strategy in many ways is going, I'm here, I'm trying to get there. This is the landscape in front of me. What are the options of the paths that I can walk to get to that outcome that I want? And, you know, all of that is seeing the map, seeing the journey, seeing the path, seeing the options. It's got that strong visual sense to it, which is why I think, there's a, a dispro- disproportionate number of CEOs and senior leaders who are actually dyslexic because what they've got is they've got that different sort of intelligence that is more visual that allows them to play more of that strategic role. Hmm. So you know, one of the, the really interesting uh, paradoxes, I think, also of, of your career based on what you've told me so far is, is that you, know, you sort of thrive within the system and then, you know, you rebel against this notion of becoming a lawyer, <laughs> right. uh, which I think is fascinating. And I, I am just wondering, you know, are there certain personality traits or characteristics that you think uh, inherently are built into you that enabled that uh, or that caused that? Because, you know, one of the, the things that I've been really thinking a lot about lately is how much of this ability to uh, not just challenge, but redefine the status quo is, is nurture or nature. Well, this is another great question. I mean, (laughs) there's no doubt that I have always had a degree of how do you be the rebel within the system? Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, even getting getting the the whole Rhodes Scholarship hoo-ha. I mean, the the whole interviewing process, it's all a bit stressful and, and the like. And when I looked up who I was, who I was up against in terms of the other candidates, I was I was pretty clear that I didn't have uh, any hope whatsoever of getting selected to be a Rhodes Scholar because these people were amazing. Um, but what I did was I went, you know what, okay, so how do I emphasize how I'm different and what makes me unique? So, you know, at that time I had really long dyed blonde hair. I had multiple piercings. Um, I, you know, I wore a purple suit with a purple and pink tie dye tie to the interviews. Um, and you know, I just stood out from everybody else who's all wearing blue suits and white shirts and red ties or blouses and, you know, pearls and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and I was just taking the gamble that you're either going to say yes to me because I'm different or you're going to say an absolute no to me. I was either going to come first or I was going to come last. There was no middle ground here. Uh, but, you know, I, I've always had that part of me that is going, look, I like the system. I like to be able to work the system. 
but it also feels like um, manacled. I also feel bound by the system. So it's like, how do I upend the system from from within, uh, rather than trying to, for instance, change the system from without? Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a, you know, I think it would be a really interesting matrix. I don't know what the answer is here, Sunni, but if you imagine one of those classic consultants two by two matrices, which is, um, you know, on one axis you could have disrupt and the other one you could have uh, something like uh, continue. And then on another axis, maybe the vertical axis, you could have from the inside or from the outside. It'd be interesting to see who falls where and whether you could find those different personality types to say, well, look, it's easy enough probably to find people who want to continue the system from within. That's lots of people. Maybe there are people who like to disrupt the system from within. I would probably claim that label. Um, maybe there are people who like to disrupt the system from without. So maybe those are high-tech entrepreneurs, maybe you, maybe somebody else. Maybe there are people who in some ways are looking to support the system. Who knows? I don't know whether that works or not. But I do think it's interesting to go play around with that idea to go, how are we naturally wired and how do we play to that strength? Mm. Well, I think that that makes a perfect setup to, to talk a little bit about some of your work itself uh, after this period. You know, and, and I want to spend some time talking about this period. You know, inventing and imagining products, and this period of organizational change, and how the the previous background and this sort of mindset uh, influenced and shaped the way you did your work in those things, and of course, then how those things have influenced and shaped your work moving forward. Sure. Well, look, my, the first job I got coming out of university. I mean, the first full-time job, because I, you know, I worked my way through university doing various things like washing up dishes and waiting and all of that good stuff, um, was with this innovation and creativity company. And I was lucky to find them. I mean, on the one hand, the guys who started it were kind of, they were maniacs. <laughs> I mean, they were insane. So they were trying to work for people who were kind of insane and slightly psychopathic. But on the other hand, what I loved about them was they started this innovation company in the early 90s. So this is before innovation became a real buzzword and thing. It was just on the cusp of that. And they came from uh, working for some of the big, what they call FMCG firms, so like Unilever and Procter & Gamble. And all they knew was that they didn't want to do business as usual. So when I showed up and I had the long blonde hair and the earrings and I was making my own clothes and they were like, you are weird, but we kind of like you, so come and work with us. And, you know, they, when they started issuing invoices, they, would, they, they chose not to follow a numerical system, but they just put different symbols on the invoice just because it was anything to do other than business as usual. And what I learned from one of them, in particular, a guy called Matt, who he's been influential. I mean, he's a he's a bit of a psychopath, but he he was an interesting mentor as well. Is that he kept talking about you're always trying to find the right balance between madness and measure. You know, too much measure, and you're just part of the system. You're a bit grey. You're a bit forgettable. Too much madness, and you're just weird. <laughs> you know, you're just that oddball that scares people off. But if you find that right balance between madness and measure, then you have the ability to be interesting and potentially disruptive and potentially attractive to people. So, you know, it was, uh, it was, we're recording this in January. So uh, it was the Golden Globes last night. And Ricky Gervais was the MC at the Golden Globes. 
And he's just got this great kind of place around madness and measure, which he's part of the system. You know, he makes his millions from doing his work and doing his shows, but he's extremely disruptive as well. If you go back and watch the opening monologue from the Golden Globes by Ricky Gervais, it's outrageous, some of the stuff that he's saying. And uh, I think when I come back to thinking, uh, what's the, the seed that this innovation company planted with me? It really was a sense of, and which I'm grateful for, which is my very first job wasn't one that was about trying to conform to a system. And I think often for us, for many people, their first job is basically in many ways going, we're just going to teach you what it's like to work in the system because it means doing this. I mean, showing up at this time, it means doing this work. It means sucking up to these bosses. And what this company did was going, we're not, we're not about trying to beat you into the system. We're actually trying to encourage you to not be part of a system. And that's been hugely influential from you know, where I put my time and effort to even what I call my company, Box of Crayons. That ability to discern between uh, madness and measure, uh, is that something that you think is the byproduct of uh, just being exposed to a wide variety and a wide capacity of work over the course of a, a career? Or is it something that you start out with? I think it's, um, I would hazard a guess that it's something that you that people have to lesser or greater extents and it's nurtured and it's grown as a skill um you know i've had the luck of being exposed to it but i've also had a lot of practice at doing it so i you know there have been times where i played it too safe for sure there's definitely times where i've gone too too over into the madness realm and just sat there isolated and lonely as people have kind of pointed at me and made strange noises um, so I do think it's one of those things that allows that is inherent in us, so nature. But I think through practice and through mentoring allows you to kind of build it so that you can find the right balance between what works and what has the right amount of kind of disruption to it. Mm. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavor? dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So how did this entire perspective of, uh, you know, challenging the system and, and, you know, finding that balance between madness and measure impact the work that you ended up doing in organizational change? Well, it's... One of the things that I came to, well, and the reason I left the innovation company was, you know, our primary focus was inventing products and services so that they could then launch them onto to their, to their audience, to their, their customers. And we noticed, I noticed that even the really good ideas we had would often scuttle back into that organization and die somewhere <laughs> because the organization's status quo just sucked the momentum out of any new product development or innovation process that was happening. And remember, this is in the early 90s, so that thinking around innovation and systemic innovation wasn't as developed or as nuanced as I think it probably is now. But for me, Srini, it planted the seed where I went, I need to figure out how organizations change and evolve and grow. Because at the moment what an organization is, is a stand for not a whole lot of madness and quite a lot of measure. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, organizations are set up to do what I would call good work, productive, efficient, effective, getting things done, minimum mistakes, minimum errors, ISO 9000 certification, all of that sort of stuff. So that's when you run into things like Clayton Christensen and the innovators the dilemma, which is around how when you've got a system who, as soon as you have a system, you have something that is committed to the status quo. As soon as you push against the system, you get somebody, you get the system pushing back. That's homeostasis. So part of how uh, that early seeds for the innovation company planted me evolved into a, so how do you make change happen in a complex system that typically doesn't really like change? 
and that's that became the next kind of chapter of the work that I was doing, which is to try and figure that out. Mm. So how does that uh, connect to the whole idea of more great work uh, and less good work? And what does that framework look like and how do we start to apply it in our own lives and our own work? Yeah. So I wrote a, a book, I think 2010 now, something like that, called Do More Great Work. And it gets to the very heart of this. You know, the subtitle is do less of the busy work, do more of the stuff that matters. So the really simple model uh, that I think will resonate with the folks listening in is saying, look, everything you do in your life can fall into one of these three different buckets. There's either bad work, good work, or great work. So the the really fast definitions of each type of those, bad work is the mind-numbing, soul-sucking, (laughs) life-crushing, stab yourself in the eye with a plastic fork to stop the pain type of work. And anybody who works in a big organization or even a small organization knows that sense of bureaucracy, the wasted meetings, the overwhelming inbox, all of that stuff where you go, you know, this is my, this is my one and precious life and somehow I've ended up doing this thing. What happened here? Good work, on the other hand, is that productive, efficient, getting things done type of work. You know, it needs to be done. It needs to be part of our lives. Uh, But the challenge with good work is that it often fills to expand every moment that you have. So you can spend your whole life just getting things done, your whole life just trying to get to the bottom of your inbox or your in-tray. And then finally, there's great work. So great work I talk about as the work that has more meaning and the work that makes more of a difference, has more impact. So impact is if you like, almost an objective measure. You know, it's like of all the stuff you could do, what's going to push the peanut furthest? What's going to make the most difference? But also you want to be thinking about what's the work that has more meaning for you? You know, what's the work that actually lights you up, that speaks to your values? Maybe, you know, in Cal Newport's work, you know, is more of that kind of deep work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge all of us have is trying to find the right balance between good work and great work. And the assumption that I have from talking to lots of people about it is most people have not enough great work and too much of the other stuff, which you know connects back to that whole definition of who we are as a company, which is helping people and organizations do less good work and more great work. Wow. Um, so I want to talk briefly about uh, your experience working with Seth. Uh, you know, we've had Seth yeah. a, a number of times here on the show, and of course, you know, he's always brilliant. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested, uh, you know, what you learned uh, about publishing, about creative creativity, mm. uh, about mindset. I mean, there's so many lessons I can only imagine that you would get working up close and, and personal with somebody like Seth, and I'm just curious what they are and <laughs> how you've applied them going forward. Well, I, there are some lessons I've picked up there. So here's what I would say about Seth. Um, first of all, he's, he's very generous, and that's a kind of a base value that he has and embodied, which is wonderful. Secondly, I'd say he's probably 80% genius and 20% madman. I mean, <laughs> there's a degree of insanity to working with that guy. Um, and, you know, before we started recording, Srini, you and I were talking about writing and deadlines and, you know, how quickly can you write a book and all of that great stuff because I know you're, you're wrestling with one at the moment and I've been wrestling with a few myself. And when I started working with Seth, so here what was, here's what's cool about it. Um, when he went through his year of publishing books um, called The Domino Project, he did it in partnership with Amazon, 
And you know, he was like, I'm going to try and disrupt the publishing industry and experiment. This is fantastic. Anyway, I pitched him an idea of a book that I had for a number of years, which is the th- getting various thought leaders to write pieces about, about great work, but to see if we could get all the money from the book to go to a good cause. And that's why it's called End Malaria, this book, mm-hmm. because of the 60 or 70 uh, articles that are in the book, they're all about how to have more impact in this world, how to make more of a difference. But 100% of the ebook revenue and almost all of the hard copy revenue goes straight to Malaria No More, which is how we managed to raise so much money. Anyway, when I started working with Seth, I think we agreed to do it in March. We agreed to publish it in uh, September. <laughs> so already I've now got, what, five months to write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, or not just write it, finish this book. Um, and then I think three months into it, he basically went, yeah, we, we've moved the publishing date up six weeks, so you have to, we, we, we need you to kind of speed things up. And I was, at, I was at a peak busy moment in my own business here. And I was like, wow, I, I hear you, Seth, but, uh, you know, I've got this, I've got that. I'm really, I'm not going to even be home for the next six weeks. So I think we have to stick to the original timeline. And Seth's like, yeah, no, we're actually going with this timeline. <laughs> like, okay, so this isn't this isn't a democracy. This is a, a decision. All right. So, um, getting that book out the door almost killed me because we were working to this impossible deadline. But you know what I would have learned from Seth is um, uh, take a, take a chance. Uh, you know, ship it, which is one of his great maxims, but he uh-huh. lives that. You know, he's all about get the thing out the door. Let's not allow the project to fill all the time we allot it. Let's go, what's the fastest we could way to get this out the door? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I learned from Seth is always let the smart people go first. So we met in New York. I'd flown up down from Toronto to discuss the marketing of the book. And we grab and grab a coffee in Starbucks and Seth sits down along with uh, Michael, who is his kind of executive editor. And uh, he was like, oh, so, um, so what ideas do you have around marketing? And I'm like, I'm glad you are, Seth. I've got this, I've got that. I, I'd done a little mind map. I talked his, my way through all the ideas I had. And he looked interested and nodded his head and went, great, yeah, nice. Well, here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and at that stage I was like, Ah, I should have just let Seth go first because it's clear what we're doing here. We're doing Seth's idea. Of course we're doing what Seth suggested. Why would we be doing my plans when I've got Seth Godin, marketer extraordinaire, thinking about the marketing of this book? So that would be one of my other key lessons of working with Seth is let him go first if you can. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I I can only imagine. I've heard similar stories about the sort of crazy things. Uh, It it seems like one of the the sort of themes that runs through his work when anybody works with him is making what seems impossible possible. Well, he's not one to say, what's the slowest, easiest way to do this? Yeah. Um, And what we're striving for is, you know, a little better than mediocrity. (laughs) It's like, what's the fastest most intense way of doing it. What are the rules we can break? Let's not have any excuses. Let's just get the thing out the door and do it as good a job as we can. So yeah, he he brings an intensity to the work, which is part of where I think you find meaning in the work. 
You know, it's interesting to, to hear about intensity brought to work. And I, I see this in a, a handful of people that um, I've had the good fortune to work closely with, you know, one is my mentor, Greg Hartle, another is my friend, AJ Leon. And, and you know, Greg Hartle mm-hmm. and I had talked about this quite a bit uh, in a conversation I had with him. And he said that he attributes that degree of intensity to thoughtfulness. He said, because he's committed to such a high quality end product that he believes the intensity will be worth it, even if everybody hates the process. That's interesting. You know, for me, it might be slightly different, which is um, I think confidence of the the meaningfulness of the work mm-hmm. can justify intensity. Um, you know, the quality of the work, you, 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 you're never actually sure, I think, whether the, whether you've made something that will resonate and therefore have the quality you want with the customers that you're trying to write the, do the thing for. Yeah. But if there's a sense around, I am, I am so committed to this and I'm, and I've almost got beyond the point of what the outcome is. Cause I just think that the importance of it is to get that work out into the world because uh, of the sense of meaning. That's where I think I would attribute to, any intensity that I bring to the game from, from that, that commitment to the meaning of it rather than to the quality of it. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, shift gears and start talking about the, uh, the coaching habit and, uh, you know, the sort of the entire framework of, you know, where this came from and how it can be applied to people's lives. So, you know, when, when you kindly asked me to introduce myself and I was saying, well, we're, our, bigger, our bigger mission is to help people and organizations do less good work and more great work. But where we've found ourselves specializing is giving busy managers the tools so that they can coach in 10 minutes or less. And part of that just comes from this belief that in terms of a behavior that helps drive great work, in terms of a behavior that creates resilience and allows humanity to flourish in organizations, then coaching is one of those foundational behaviors, if not the foundational behavior. So rather than trying to do a whole range of different things, you know, innovation, leadership, communication, all of that sort of stuff, we've really just kind of doubled down to say coaching. Coaching is the thing. That's the one thing we're trying to do is create a shift of behavior so that people ask a few more questions and give a little less advice, which is the, you know, the, the fundamentals of being more coach-like. Mm-hmm. And the problem with training in organizations and, and beyond life in organization is that it doesn't really work very well in terms of making people change their behavior. It's really annoying if you're in the world of training like I am. Uh, it's, it reminds me of that quote from Winston Churchill who said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government in the world, apart from all the other ones. And it's like training. Training is the worst form of creating behavior change, apart from all the other ones. So I had that thorn in my shoe, that bee in my bonnet going, look, coaching really is important. The way that people get access to that is they go to some sort of training program, typically. And honestly, training in general tends to suck and the coach training that I've seen particularly tends to suck. So the seed for this book actually comes from the the training that we've been doing now. I I think we probably put through 10, 20,000 people through these programs. Mm -hmm. 
And the quest for me is always, Srini, how do I make this as simple as possible, but no simpler? You know, how do I give it as practical and accessible as I can? So what we talk about in the book is saying, look, if you work with people, if you're a manager or a leader or you bump into people in your day-to-day life, if you have seven good questions in your back pocket and you have the insight as to how you make them a more daily habit, a way of more regularly using them, you are going to increase your impact and you're going to work less hard and have more impact like that. So that's that's the origin of the book and that's what we get into, just these seven good questions. Mm. So let's get into the seven questions. Okay. Where do you want me to go? I mean, each one of these ha- has a title. So I can let me run through the titles of the seven questions and you yeah. can pick the one that captures your imagination or kind of hooks you. Okay. So we've got the Kickstarter question, get things going. We've got the awe question, A-W-E, the awe question. We've got the focus question. We've got the foundation question, the lazy question, the strategic question, and then finally the learning question. So seven questions there, Srini. You're on the spot. If you had to pick one for us to kind of get into, which one would you go? <laughs> I'm going to make you do two because I want to know about both of them. Uh, you know, confession, I didn't get to read the book all the way through. So uh, my questions are about the awe one and the strategic question. Perfect. I love both. I mean, I love both of these questions. So let's start with the strategic question because the awe question, which is, by the way, the best coaching question in the world, works really well once you've had the sort of setup of another question. So the strategic question, and this fits really nicely and connects beautifully back to the the great work conversation we were having. And it's this. The question is, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? You know, there's that, that great quote from Steve Jobs that says, focus means saying no to the hundreds of other good ideas that are, that are out there. And I, I'm not sure if it's Jobs or somebody else who once said that strategy is saying no to the stuff you want to say yes to. Mm. And the truth is, most of us suck at that. You know, most of us are in that place of overwhelm, overcommitment, and we are struggling to say, how do I have the courage to say a true yes to something that really matters to us, something that's going to have an impact, something that has meaning. So for that to be a genuine yes, an authentic, fully committed yes, what must I say no to? And that is really hard. But let me, I mean, I'm, see, now I get to, to turn the tables a little bit. I mean, I know you're working on a new book at the moment, which I'm really excited to come, hear about when it comes out next year in August. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for you to say yes to writing that book and producing the book that you'll be able to stand behind, Penguin will be able to stand behind and go, this is a brilliant book that represents who I am and how I see this world. What have you had to say no to? A lot. Um, I've refused to do a lot of podcast interviews when I've been requested uh, by a few people. Uh, you know, I've had requests to come and have coffee with me to, to you know, pick my brain, which is one of my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said no to those. Uh, I have been almost religious at this point about blocking digital distractions for extended periods of time. Wow, uh, good for you. Yeah, I mean, we're talking. I mean, I, I can thank Cal Newport for that that one. I mean, I, I thought I was pretty good about it, but I got really almost obnox- you know, obnoxious about it to the point where I, I block everything from like 7 p.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a, a thousand other things because I, I realized that uh, absolutely I what it's funny because you know this question to me is such a profound one because we say yes to a lot of things unconsciously that we don't think about right. uh, like logging into facebook every day and, and wasting you know 
an hour or two without really deliberately thinking through our media consumption habits or, you know, checking email 20 times a day. I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, I'm not the president of the United States. I don't need to check email 20 times a day. If somebody needs to reach me, they can get in touch with me. I even turn off my phone for hours at a time now. Um, so that's that, you know, in some ways it's very habit based for me, but I, I get what you're saying. I get the gist of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've passed on the opportunity to work on a lot of other projects or collaborative things. You know, people have said, Hey, can you participate in this telesummit that I'm doing? And I, I usually will say no. Well, let me ask you a more difficult question. Yeah. What have you not said no to that you wish you had said no to? Ooh. Oh boy. Um, a couple of, uh, interviews that I've been on. Uh, for podcasts, right? My sense is when you when you get people to truly wrestle with this, there's a few easy hits that come up around the stuff that they need to say no to, and you know that differs from person to person, of course. But there are some things that are relatively easier to say no to. Mm-hmm. Then there's other stuff that is harder to say no to, maybe just because it's got a bit of that habitual thing to it, like checking social media or whatever it might be, where you're going, I need a new habit here. But for me, what I find is that um, there's another level of seduction around the stuff that speaks to almost a deeper need or longing I have that I would wish I had the courage to say no to more often. So a classic for me is um, going out and giving a speech somewhere. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens when an invitation to give a talk comes in. My ego gets stroked. Mm. They offer to pay me a chunk of money. Um, I feel I can kind of cunningly rationalize it because I'm going, I'm speaking in front of a group of 5,000 people. That's 5,000 people I can touch and change their lives on. And, you know, that doesn't always happen when you give a keynote speech. Um, There's that sense of, oh, see, I'm as important as a Cal Newport or whoever who's like (laughs) got a higher profile than me in the speaking community. But look, I'm as good as they are. And so there's that, that, there's that, those things on that boundary line where they, they, it's stroking my ego. I can find ways to post rationalize why I said yes to it. And what I find is those are the things that I really wish I could build up the muscle to say no to more powerfully and more effectively. Mm. Let me tell you about the other question that you asked about. Yeah. In some ways, I've already asked it from you, but it's the or question. So this is the second question in the book. And as I said earlier on, I think it's the best coaching question in the world. And AWE, or, is actually an acronym. And it stands for the first, the, the, the first letter of the three words in this question. It's very simple. It's very easy, but it's very powerful. And this question is simply this, and what else? And the reason that is such an effective question is twofold, Srini. The first is this. The person you're talking to, the person you're asking questions of, Whatever their first answer was, that's never the only answer, and it's really the best answer to the conversation. So what asking and what else does is it allows them to get a little deeper, unpack a little more, get a little more profound, dig another level down in terms of whatever their answer might be. So for that alone, it's a really powerful question, and in some ways it supercharges all the other questions that are in the book. You know... The, uh, the kickstart question, the very first question is, what's on your mind? Mm-hmm. And that's a good question. But if you then go, and what else is on your mind? And then you go, great, this, is there anything else on your mind? Then you already have the makings of a richer conversation because you've, you've 
gone beyond just the first easier answer. But the other reason why and what else is so effective is that it is a self-management tool. Because one of the key dynamics we talk about in the book is encouraging people to be lazier in their conversations than they currently are. Because what normally happens, particularly if you're a manager and leader in an organization, somebody asks you a question and you leap in and you try and fix it. You ask them a question, they give you an answer, and then you leap in and you try and fix it, build on it, offer advice, offer solutions. And I'm trying to get everybody to slow down the rush to leaping in, taking control, giving advice, offering up solutions. Because it it leaves the, the person asking the questions, the manager, more overwhelmed, more of a bottleneck. But it also leaves the person that they're working with more disempowered, more uh, lacking in self-sufficiency, more reliant on that manager for the answer. So what happens when you ask and what else is that you're making the person who provided the first answer do more work. And when they're working, that's when they're making new neural pathways, finding new connections. And that's where the difference is being made. And you get to sit back and actually see them do the work and go, what my job here is to help them learn. And by asking, and what else? And asking these other questions. Mm -hmm. That's where they learn. That's where they increase their self-sufficiency. They increase their potential. And they get to go and have more impact in this world. It's funny. It sounds a lot like my process for conducting interviews. (laughs) Right. Well, here's what you do brilliantly in these interviews is you, uh, you are so curious about it. You know, it's clear to me that you don't, you haven't got a, a list of six questions that you're going to ask me regardless. You, you, you kind of pursue the conversation, you find what's interesting, and you ask another question about it, which is why in this, you know, in this interview, which what we've been going for almost an hour now, mm-hmm. I'm exhausted because I've been talking for 59 and a half minutes out of an hour. <laughs> You're just kind of casual sitting back going, I've barely b- broken a sweat here. And that's genius. Uh, well, I have to say, it's been really, really fun and, uh, you know, really, really eye opening. I love conversations like this because they really, really make you think. Uh, they, they make your brain hurt in a good way. Exactly. And, and that's, that to me is, is one of my favorite types of conversations because it's always interesting, you know, when, when somebody says, well, what's the practical takeaway? And I say, you know, you're probably going to be left with a lot of questions and a lot of pondering, and you're going to make changes that, would fall out of a formula or a methodology that I could prescribe. Right. I mean, that's right. I mean, it's a, um, I think what's powerful about conversations like this is they're provocative. You know, they, um, I once heard a quote, I can't remember who said it, but it said this, uh, effectively questions are portals to the next world, to the future. Mm. And I think what you're opening up, I mean, for me as well, because, you know, you can tell how hard I've had to work to answer some of your great questions, but also for the people listening in is you're opening up portals of future discovery for them to figure out so they get to see their world differently and get to see themselves differently within that world. Awesome. Well, I have uh, one final question for you, uh, which is how we close all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, that's um, a very good question. I wish I, I, I wish I collected every single answer that you've ever got from a guest. <laughs> because it would be interesting to see how they're similar and how they're different. 
Well, you'll get um, to in my book. <laughs> there we go. Nice, nice little trailer there for the book. Yeah. Um, you know, we we all have this mix of talents we're born with, skills that we've nurtured, things we've decided to emphasize, things we've decided to de-emphasize in who we are. So we all have that kind of different palette. But I think what becomes unmistakable is when you've got the courage to turn the volume up to 10 on that on that kind of mix of who you are and how you've shown up in the world. Um, you know, when we, there's a exercise we do, especially from the Do More Great Workbook, where you get people to tell a story about a, a great work moment of their past. And from that story, you get to have a go at distilling out what the core values you might have. And everybody uses different language and different words to describe what their three to five core values might be. But then it's very interesting. You ask people on a score of one to seven, you know, how or one to 10, let's say, how do you rate yourself as to how you're living those values at the moment? And honestly, most people are like somewhere between four and seven is their answer. And then you go, okay, pick one of those values. Now imagine this. If you turn that value up to 10 and you were living it at a 10, what would you stop doing? What would you start doing? What would you do more of? And I think once you get that volume up to 10, that's when people start to truly become unmistakable. Okay, that was awesome. So awesome that I'm going to steal that phrase, turn the volume up to 10 <laughs> on who you are and how you show up in the world, because I'm literally writing the conclusion to the book. That's like, perfect. I'm totally stealing that. But well, I yeah, or even better, can. steal it from Spinal Tap, <laughs> you know, who are all about you take it to 11, and that's when things get really interesting. Awesome. Well, Michael, this has been phenomenal. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and, and all of your insights with our listeners uh, here at The Unmistakable Creative. Srini, it's been a pleasure. You're a, you're a masterful interviewer, so it's been a, great, a fun conversation from this end as well. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. 
My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.